There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. Welcome back to another episode of Titans of Food Service, where we delve deep into the world of food service, having the conversations around innovation, creativity, and empowering stories with the movers and shakers who have made it to the top. I'm your host, Nick Portillo, and today I welcome Rosalind Darling, a culinary innovator and entrepreneur whose passion for food, creativity, and business acumen have influenced the global food industry. At the heart of Rosalind's approach lies what she calls culinary compassion, a unique mindset centered on humanity, emotions, and consumer care. With expertise in menu strategy, recipe development, new product formulation, and chef training, Rosalind specializes in sparking aha moments in chefs and innovators, aligning consumer understanding with streamlined operations and brand strategy. And what's her impact? Faster market entry, deeper consumer loyalty, and fortified brand reputation. Rosalind's impressive portfolio includes collaborations with Fortune 500 companies like PepsiCo, Kellogg's, Danone North America, King's Hawaiian, Sodexo, McDonald's, Wendy's, Avocados from Mexico, and many more. She's not just a corporate powerhouse. Rosalind's wisdom shines at Flavor in the Menu Culinary Roundtables as a strategic partner with the Culinary Institute of America and as a keynote speaker at national conferences like Flavor in the Menu and Mize. Join us as we explore Rosalind's extraordinary journey from PepsiCo to culinary stardom, where every creation reflects her personal kitchen adventures and professional mastery. Get ready to be inspired by a true titan of food service. Let's go ahead and welcome Rosalind. Rosalind, welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to meet with me. And I'm looking forward to learning more about you and and diving deeper into your uh, journey here in the food service industry. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on your podcast. Thank you. I thank you. (laughs) So I'm just curious, how did you get into this crazy industry we call food service? Oh my gosh. How, where do I even start? Well, I mean, I've always been in love with food, pastry. Food has always been a love language. So uh, I actually started French pastry when I was four. And I started professional French technique uh, at the age of 13. I, you know, it's always been such a curiosity of mine, um, just seeing how people gather around the table and they connect over food. I knew I wanted to be a part of that. Um, But that actually wasn't my first career. So chef was not my first career. I actually started in the world of brand marketing. Mm. Yes. Um, I had immigrant parents. And then the 80s, you know, being a chef was like not the typical first gen career path. You know, I was kind of told be a doctor, be a lawyer, be a businesswoman or be the news anchor Connie Chung. I don't know if you know her. No, I don't. <laughs> okay. She had really big hair. She was awesome. But anyways, I I ended up um, going into marketing. I have okay. marketing entrepreneurial skills and talent development. That's what I got my initial bachelor's degree on. Oh, wow. But I've always loved food, cooking, try to do little like startups um, as a kid. And I knew that even if I was doing marketing, I wanted it to be in food. 
And so the first company that I left out of college was at PepsiCo and it was on the Quaker Oats brand um, later to be the global nutrition group. And it was taking, you know, paper ideas and taking it all the way to the grocery shelf and everything in between that from going inside consumers homes to discover, you know, their breakfast behaviors and, and, you know, kind of addressing those needs that they knew they needed, but some of the unanticipated needs too. And I'm going to say it was kind of serendipitous that being in marketing innovation at PepsiCo, I learned that there was a path called culinary research and development. Hmm. I was actually a client for a creative agency out of Boulder, and they helped to develop a lot of our really cool products that Quaker sells today, like the Real Medleys brand. I was part of the original launch in 2012 for that. And when I was in Boulder uh, with this agency, I was like, oh my gosh, there is a discrepancy here. I need to be on the other side of this table. You know, this, you know, highly creative, very skilled, very talented group. And I just knew I'm like, I need to be a R&D chef. I need to figure out a way I will be back. (laughs) And so I ended up rerouting all of my MBA money to go to culinary school at night while doing my PepsiCo job during the day, which I do not recommend that level of sleep deprivation. Yes. (laughs) But I made the full switch in 2014 and started, you know, developing new products from a culinary R&D point uh, for PepsiCo and moved into the fun, wild world of agency life. And that's where the food service piece came. Um, it was a lot of menu ideations and working with manufacturers to help sell in their products to operators. And like any agency life, it's very fast and furious. And I was able to learn a lot. I was able to share a lot of that marketing piece, that insights piece into the work. And it just kept evolving. So I don't have that typical restaurant chef, you know, experience, but now as a food service chef, you know, I bring that marketing piece, I bring that insights piece and, you know, to be able to teach that at the CIA, to be able to speak on stage and share my truth and knowledge and inspire others. And along with, you know, recipe development, I still do that. Um, That's kind of my, that's my love language now. You know, that's kind of my life's purpose. And I feel I feel really grateful to be able to do what I love. I love that. that yeah. is, you know, it's, it's it's funny. I've interviewed so many people here on this podcast and always ask, I typically lead off with the question of how did you get into food service and how did you become who you've become? And it's, it's interesting to see and hear the stories that I've picked up by interviewing all of these people of how they got into food service. It's, one way or another, most people didn't even expect to be in food service. You kind of hinted at, you know, being a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, a profession like that, which is very popular uh, or, or very uh, well talked about in schools. But yeah. food service and being in the food industry is not necessarily one that's talked about all that much. So it's it's been really fascinating to see how people get into this industry. Yeah, I feel like it's never a linear path. Yeah. Right. And it's definitely... You got to love it because sometimes I joke around, but like joking, not joking. It's kind of Stockholm syndrome. It is a wild ride. You know, like it is hard work, but it is rewarding. 
And it, it can be turbulent. You know, we mm-hmm. saw that the last few years of what, you know, the world can do to our industry. And so to really hang on, to really, you know, find ways to fall in love with the food service industry every day, that's that's kind of what you got to do to survive and thrive. Yeah, yeah. no kidding. Yeah, totally. On the culinary innovation side, what are some of the skills that somebody would need to be successful at that job? I think that, you know, just beyond being a chef and having that technical knowledge, I think that um, having a deep sense of empathy will take you very far. Okay. You know, it's food is love, right? And it's a medium actually for how we connect. You know, there's nothing better than coming together at the dinner table and breaking bread, sharing the same meal. And, you know, having a chef that understands, you know, what's happening in that person's world and what they carry with them when they come to the table is really important because we have the ability to show that love, to show that care, to show that comfort or joy through the food that we make. Mm -hmm. And it creates a much deeper meaning than just calories. So I think a deep sense of empathy understanding. And I, that's where like the consumer insights and marketing comes into play, right? Like what story do you tell? What emotional craving are you satisfying? I think that that's kind of what takes a chef from like to the next tier, to the next level Mm -hmm. of their career. Yeah. And where do you get inspiration from on, you know, the, on the new innovative items that you create? Oh my gosh. That is a great question. Um, I think that every chef has different inspiration. And for me, it's literally everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, it's not just the publications of ingredients and movies like that definitely helps that kind of spurs the conversation. But honestly, um, it's taking a walk outside. It's, you know, experiencing the world around you, like go to that music concert, go to that art gallery, go hang out with your friends and, you know, just kind of like, just talk about life. It's doing arts and crafts. Like I'm a big arts and crafts person. And I find that creativity, the process of it is very similar throughout different mediums. So are you making clothing? Are you making shoes? Are you making jewelry? Are you making a, doing a painting? Are you composing a song? They follow very similar creativity paths. And so when you tap into other creatives that are outside of your industry, you can take pieces of that and bring it with you. And those inspirations, by the way, I just got to say it out loud is like when that hits, you, you have to just stop and catch it. Right. There's a lot of times when I'm sitting there, I was like, oh my God, I just thought of this great idea. You know what? I'll, I'll write it down later. I'm like right in the middle of something and I'll write it down later. And I never remember it. <laughs> it's the most frustrating thing. Or I'll remember it, but not in that provocative way um, when it came to me initially. You know, ideas and inspiration are, it's kind of like clouds going through the sky and, and you just got to catch it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Totally. It, when, when you come up with new, when you have inspiration, is it ever seasonal? Could it be maybe you've traveled to a, a certain 
a new area or a different country, or maybe it's even something that's on trend currently with uh, you know what's going on in food service at that time? Yes, I definitely think that travel, collecting new experiences, mm-hmm. um, that will always just kind of seep into the collection of experiences and thoughts that you already have. And it just kind of meshes it all together. So, you know, having the more experiences that you can have, the more conversations that you can have, you learn. And every inspiration will still translate differently person by person because we all have different collective experiences, values, uh, heritages, and backgrounds. Um, So I always just, you know, tell my fellow chefs and, and peeps in our industry is like share Share your knowledge. You know, it's a very old school way of thinking to hold on to what you have and protect it. But I feel like that's kind of coming from a place of scarcity. Um, yeah. And when you come from a place of abundance and sharing, you know, you you lift everybody up with you. And, and everybody kind of wins in their own way. And there's enough room for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When you're at Quaker, you were... At the you mentioned, you were on the R&D side there. What are some of the inputs that you have to look at when creating a product on a mass scale like that? Mm, yeah. It's going to be three things, three, three must-haves that can spawn creativity, but they still need to meet these three things. It's, it's your cogs. Mm. I mean, these aren't like sexy at all. It's your cogs. It's your shelf life slash water activity, Mm -hmm. moisture migration. That's so technical. Um, But then that other piece too is being able to meet the consumer need. It's telling that story. It's, it's being able to connect with your consumers. Um, I feel like the R and D side of it will only take you so far if you can't tell the story or meet the consumer need. If you cannot get your cogs and your like very um, nitty gritty distribution in order, like that won't matter either. But also like meeting what your consumers are wanting. You can't really do two of the three and have a very successful product. And I know there's like so many more that whoever is listening to be like, but there's more. Well, like, yeah. Of course there's more. But like, <laughs> I feel like those are like kind of the three ta- table stakes. That you need. Yeah. I think those would. I think those make pretty logical sense to have. You know, especially yeah. when creating food, is you you want to know how much does it cost to make this thing, and how long is it going to last, and will people want it? Is there a need for it? Yeah. Um, is it delicious? Does it connect to people? Is it like what is it feeding them? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When you look back on your career, is there anything or any item or product that you've created? or idea that most sticks out to you is one that is you're most proud of, or at least one that is very memorable to you? I would say, I mean, there's so many projects, but I'm just going to start with kind of the very, the first one that hooked me in Mm -hmm. Quaker real medleys. You know, it started as this idea of, you know, oatmeal can be pretty pedestrian, you know, it's like, Raisins, brown sugar, and almonds. Cool. But like, how, do we, <laughs> how do we elevate that, right? Like, sure. 
I think like some of the kisses of death that we heard from focus groups is like, it makes a great camping food. And I'm like, Oh, right. (laughs) You don't want to hear that. It's like, Oh, you gotta be so hungry and desperate that all of a sudden, like, that sounds good. Like we don't want that. You know, we want to elevate it. You know, we want to make it, we want to make oatmeal enjoyable, something that people actually even look forward to. And we wanted to make it convenient. We learned that on average, people only spend 13 minutes um, on their whole breakfast routine, period, from the moment they start cooking to clean up, 13 minutes, right? So it's like, how do you give that elevated oatmeal experience in 13 minutes or less? And that's where Quaker Real Medleys came from. It was a great team that I worked with. They showed how collaborative, you know, cross-functionals could be. We didn't compromise on taste and flavor. You know, we used like, yeah, we pushed our cogs to the very limit that leadership would let us. And in the end, you know, we had these four beautiful flavors of oatmeal and not just oatmeal, but like whole grains and freeze-dried fruits and a very flavorful experience that we could be proud of. And the industry validated that. They made it, you know, national grocery store item of the year. And that's where I knew it's like, man, that this is, this is where I want to be. And, and since then I've done a lot of other really fun projects around fruit and grains and plant-based and really amazing steak and kombucha and cannabis edibles. But you know, it's always that first one that hooks you in. And on that note, tell me about what are you up to in present day? Present day. A lot of irons in the fire, and it's all very exciting um, just to see how the industry has really grasped onto it. So now, you know, I do still do uh, recipe innovation. I do new product formulation, um, both in commercial and non-commercial food segments, okay. food service segments. I can't tell who my clients are, of course, but I can yeah. tell you that it's very exciting stuff on a very wide scale. I teach at the CIA continuing education for corporate chefs. I'm very grateful for that. And then a lot of public speaking. I always joke like public speaking is probably the best drug, at least for me. Um, I really love connecting with people and witnessing those aha moments. Like you can see it from stage when people are just like, whoa, I was like, yeah, that's right. We can do this, right? Um, So a lot of teaching public speaking and currently in the process of like knock on wood, um, writing a book that talks about this idea of culinary compassion. It's what I've been teaching at the CIA. It's what I've been teaching on stage. I always incorporated it into my innovation mindset and culinary compassion is this innovation mindset that's that evolves, that revolves around human experiences, human emotion. And by understanding that human emotion, like how can we design foods and beverages that tap into that deeper part of ourselves? Because when you can, when you can really connect with the consumer that way, you know, you build brand loyalty, you can drive repeat. And on top of that, you know, it's a really satisfying, fulfilling sense that you're, you're taking care of your consumers. So culinary compassion is is definitely something that's been very top of mind. 
And I'm very excited to continue the ball rolling. Uh, this is the first time I've ever said to anybody that I'm working on a book. I'm working on a book. We'll see how it goes. Is the book around culinary compassion? It is. It's kind of a cookbook in some ways. Um, I'm not sure mm -hmm. if you're familiar with the Flavor Bible. The Flavor Bible mm -hmm. is also a reference of what's complementary to what. And it's more of like a mindset and, and reference piece. So culinary compassion is this idea that people eat their foods and uh, eat their feelings, drink their feelings, mm -hmm. and that that changes from country to country. You know, yeah. what one dish that's made in India to celebrate those ingredients and those cooking techniques that symbolize celebration in India might be different for Italy, might be different for Japan. And so the book is going to be exploring what those culinary signatures are, what those cooking techniques are that help a country emote through food. Hmm. I really like that. You know, it's funny you bring that up because this last weekend, my wife and I were out on a walk and I think we just started talking about, we met in college, I think talking about how we met and whatnot. And, and then it, it came to the idea of like, what did you eat as a kid? And, you know, like gushers and fruit roll-ups. And she's like, why don't we just go to the store and buy all that stuff and watch football? Like it was such a, and like by eating those <laughs> snacks, which are not good for you, it, you know, I didn't necessarily feel good at the end of the day, but it brought back so many memories of just being a kid and having fun and, you know, the packaging is fun and it, everything is filled with red dye and sugar. And, but it was just a really cool experience and you're right. You know, ingredients and food and this, in this case, very highly processed food, you know, it does create that kind of an emotional experience. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that sounds amazing. I'm going to, I'm going to have to tell my husband about that idea when we, when we watch football or kickoff this Thursday, I think. Um, yep. But, you know, I think that if that nostalgia, that joy, that feeling of freedom and release, is that what you would kind of, you know, attribute the gushers and all of that like candy to symbolize? Totally. Yeah, I think it, it definitely symbolizes, I think, uh, you know, my childhood, freedom, yeah. fun, you know, all those types of things. Cool. Well, you want to do a thought exercise then on the, on gushers then? Is this too nerdy? I'd love to. to. Do? Okay. Yeah. So if we think about gushers and it's multi-textural, it's colorful, it, it has this novel flavor. It's a little weird, right? Mm -hmm. um, those are the sensory attributes that you can kind of see like maybe that's what childhood is for you. You know, it's full of color and wonder and you know, flavors, whether that's like this contrast of tangy and sweet, or it's this contrast of textures that kind of is surprising. That can be the common thread of what childhood nostalgia and freedom and joy mean. And so how do you take these sensory attributes and turn it into a more adult-like food? You know, what does that look like? You know, could that be a dessert that's savory and sweet? Could that be using like bold, bright colors um, in your plating? Could that be something that's a little unexpected? Like, oh, I just bit into this thing. And then all of a sudden, it was like almost like a flavor explosion in my mouth. Like, I think that's what, you know, the popping boba in bubble tea, that's mm -hmm. 
that's yeah. that's the elevated version of a gusher if you think about it that's very true right it, and that can symbolize joy and happiness so it's it's kind of looking behind the matrix of what makes something be associated with that emotion yeah. I've never heard someone so eloquently describe a gusher um, <laughs> that you are so spot on and, and like how it, <laughs> you started, you know, describing it and maybe how I view my childhood. I'm like, yeah, I kind of do view it that way. And you're, to- I mean, spot on. Very well done there. Ah, oh, thanks. Thanks for riffing with me. I, you know, I don't always hit it, but when I do, it, it feels pretty good. So thanks for... <laughs> Thanks for nerding out with me on that one. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> when you do your public speaking engagements, what are some of the, is this, is culinary compassion the topic that you typically uh, talk about or is there any, or are there other things that you usually talk about? Culinary compassion is one of the main things I'm talking about. I think, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's, that tool has been years in the making and and I made the intention that this year would be the the formal rollout to the industry, but I also teach in other ways of, you know, like at Expo East uh, later this month, I, I'm talking about like how CPGs can think about getting into food service. Like what are the implications that you need to think about to address the purchasing considerations of a chef operator? You know, like that's, mm-hmm. that can be pretty tactical um, mm-hmm. and fun. And, and, you know, another one too is actually just helping chefs think through what their branding is and what they stand for. I think the common thread is like, I just want people, brands, products to kind of be authentically themselves to speak their truth. Um, because what, where the beauty lies is in the differences that we all bring. It's, it's the complementary set. Um, so a lot of what I teach is kind of like thinking about how do you bring yourself to the world? You know, like what, what things excite you? What brands, you know, what, I'm sorry, I'm trying to think through this. It's like a very great question. I want to make sure I'm answering it correctly. It's just, how do you best convey your truth and, and the beauty of what you want to bring to the world? And that's just brands, not just brands, but that's, that's people, that's chefs, that's restaurants. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, because I feel like the more authentic you are to yourself, um, the more people see that and they will gravitate to that. You will find you will find those consumers. You will find your following and your tribe and the connection will just be so much deeper. Absolutely. That is definitely a very ethereal, very amorphous way of thinking it. And that's definitely a lifelong journey. I will not say that I've mastered it, but um, I'm definitely definitely trying. Yeah. You mentioned the, you know, CPG companies going from retail to food service as if I'm a food service broker myself. And we get a lot of companies that reach out to us looking to for representation. And they've they've figured out uh, in one way or another, the retail grocery side of the business, the CPG side, but getting into food service. Are we both selling food, retail and food service? Yes. Are they do you buy oatmeal in retail oatmeal and food service? Yes. However, there's still such great differences. What are some of the ways that companies can bridge that gap from CPG to food service? Yes. I think it's understanding a few things. It's understanding that that commercial kitchen uh, mindset is going to be so much different than a home kitchen in the ways that 
there's only so many SKUs that a commercial kitchen will hold. It takes a lot to be a pantry item in a commercial kitchen. A lot of hoops you got to jump through. And in order to justify being that new SKU, you got to show that your product can pull its weight on the menu. So that's not just like one, two, or even three items on a menu. I know that a lot of operators now, especially after COVID, it's like seven to 10 items on a menu. And it can be throughout Mm -hmm. food and beverage or morning or nighttime, but it really needs to show a culinary versatility that justifies its place. And I think that a lot of CPGs, they can help chefs think through that. You know, it's not that chefs can't arrive at the idea and the recipes, but a lot of them just don't have time, to be honest. They're putting out fires in different locations. They're they're contending with a lot of stuff. So if a CPG can come with solutions and this mentality of partnership, then you can they'll they'll be willing to work with you on that. So giving inspirational recipes, you know, giving thought starters, maybe even helping them with their innovation pipeline based on what they're looking to fill. I think that that is one of them. And another another really important factor too that I think is often overlooked is the packaging. You know, especially with the sustainability piece that operators need to contend with. Um, the packaging and how it can be food service friendly is really important. You know, packaging at retail, you know, two cups of something, um, whether that's shredded cheese or sauce or whatever, like a chef will have a really hard time opening many, many, many of those two cup packages to make the bulk, you know, 20 quarts of sauce they need to make for service. And so exactly, uh, I know a lot of operators that have turned away CPGs because the packaging is not conducive to the operations. So it's this deep understanding mm-hmm. of the operations piece um, that will that will help open those doors. Yeah. And I know you can't disclose who you work with, but maybe more <laughs> of um, what type of companies do you work with? Is it manufacturers? Is it you know restaurants, retailers? A lot of it right now is manufacturers on behalf mm-hmm. of operators. So it's it's coming from a place of, hey, we have this opportunity of getting on this operator's menu. Um, can you help us develop menu items that would work with their brand? You know their operations. You know, you've been in hundreds of kitchens before. Like you already know what the implications of what it takes to launch. I'm being pulled into a lot of that um, as of late. Yeah. And a lot of it's honestly health and wellness, which is I think it's just kind of the inertia of like, I celebrate foods that taste really great and feel really great in your body. So a lot of the brands that I work with now are, are like health and wellness based, which can mean a lot of different things, but that's kind of the very broad strokes. How is it being, uh, owning your own business? Ooh. (laughs) 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 I... I love it. I I love it. It is probably one of the most difficult things I have ever embarked on. It is mm-hmm. rewarding and challenging and thrilling and and everything great and frustrating at the same time. You know, um, 
I think it, it teaches you a lot of resilience and it teaches you a lot of believing in yourself, but also knowing when to ask for help of, mm-hmm. you know, all the things from accounting ugh, to, you know, biz dev to like the logistics side of it. It just, I think it's made me a stronger chef, um, a stronger developer, just all around a stronger, more resilient person because it, it really tests you in every direction. Like it's not just the work piece. It's like the personal piece too, like how you show up to your relationships around you, how to be able to, I don't know about balancing work life. Like I don't really believe in work life balance, but I do believe in harmony, you know, um, how do you find that harmony? But it is definitely something that I would choose to try over and over again. I don't know if I'll be doing this forever, but it's definitely for the time being. I mean, how has it been yeah. for you, you know? <laughs> like, it, yeah, you know, for, for me, my first few years, so I've been, in, my dad and I, we've owned our business now for eight years, mm-hmm. uh, just over eight years. When I first started, I didn't know, I, I, I was six days out of college and I never held a full-time job. So it was learning not just the food service industry, but how to just work in a company as well simultaneously. So him and I, we started on the same day back in June of 2015. And the first few years, I feel like I didn't know... It, it took me a while to understand what entrepreneurship was all about. And I think it was really through the pandemic where our company started to take off. And it, it, it came around... I think when we first started, you know, when we had zero dollars in sales up to our first million dollars in sales, that was a very difficult time because I did everything from sales to business development, marketing, um, you know, doing the books, everything from top to top to bottom. Then once wow. I got to a million, then it started to then you can start kind of buying back your time, finding someone who can do marketing better than I can do it, or someone who can do sales better than I can do it. You know, kind of starting to replace those types of things. But it took me a long time to get to that point and learn that that valuable lesson. And it it's definitely as as you said, there's great parts to it. There's frustrating parts to it. That work life balance for me, it's it's out the window. I probably work too much sometimes. But uh, I've also come to enjoy time off. I've gotten better at that, taking time off. And I call it enjoying the calm. When there's a moment, sometimes on a random Tuesday, I have no meetings, I have nothing. And my my mind and body like, go to work, you got to do something. But then I have to remind myself, enjoy the calm, like just sit in your car and just not do anything for 30 minutes or go go to a, uh, go get a coffee and just relax for an hour. Like it's not going to kill anybody for you to take some time to yourself. Yeah. Okay, so how long, how many years did it take for you to get to this point? Eight years. Um, right. It took six me eight years. Half, six and a half more years to go. All right. <laughs> I've only uh, been doing this for a year yeah, and a half. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it, it, and you know what? You're doing fantastic. I, I've seen your marketing. You've built a great book of business. You are very well connected in the industry. And you know what? There's, I've I've had I've interviewed people on here who have had businesses that are over a hundred years old. You know, so there, it's all, everything is relative. And I, I think the biggest thing is definitely learning from, learning from the mistakes that we've made. We've made a lot of very bad mistakes where it's almost like 
business fundamentals 101 where things just fall through the cracks and you you know you kind of just for the next time around you're like I can't do that same thing or I can't work with this type of client. Uh, I, I think that was another thing too is when we first started was just I'll take on any anybody who's willing to pay me, I will do it. Now, very, very selective on who we we work with. So then when you get when we get a client that's in our niche, they refer out other similar type manufacturers in that same exact niche. So yeah. it's, that's been very powerful for us too. I, I think that's that's really great advice. Thank you. I think that, yeah, like holding this idea of perfection is a very dangerous concept to hold on to, right? Like um, mm-hmm. I've been told like move fast, fail fast, learn fast and move on. Like don't, don't dwell. Just be like, all right, well, not going to do that again. You know, like learning for next time. And and I do agree, like that's kind of about the people part, the client fit, right? It's um, that's kind of one of the reasons why I went on my own is that, you know, like you get this freedom to work with the people that you want to work with and and finding the clients that are the right fit. And and if it's not the right fit, like I don't think I could do the best job for them. It's knowing when to let go and be like, you know what, this isn't my skill set, but I know somebody that can, you know, help you with this better than I can. And in the end, um, everybody kind of wins when you, when you know your skill set and you know where your strengths and your limitations lie. That's definitely. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, I just have to commend you. One, it's so difficult to take that leap of faith, invest in yourself, start a company. There's only a small, I'm not sure what the statistics are, but it's such a small number of people that do that. And I think just kudos to you for taking that leap and and going on this journey. Oh, thank you. You know, I have to, I really have to thank the tribe around me. Like, I don't know about you, but I, I think it would have been very difficult, if not impossible to, to have my own business if I didn't have you know, a supportive partner, a husband, you know, supportive friends, supportive colleagues in the industry that have mentored me, having coaches asking questions and just having a really solid, you know, cohort around you to help, you know, kind of calm your fears when it's like, I have no business right now. What am I doing? What am I going to (laughs) do? And then all of a sudden it's like, I have too much business right now. What am I doing? What am I going to do? And just kind of helping to guide through and and be that mirror and be that cheerleader at the same time. I I could not do it without the people around me. Yeah, for sure. You asked, you know, kind of what was, you know, I guess maybe more of a turning point. One thing that I definitely remember back to is in 2019. So what was that? four years now, mm-hmm. I joined a group. It's called Entrepreneurs Organization. I heard about it actually on a podcast. And I was like, I'm, I'm curious what it is. Because at the time, I'm like, I'm not surrounded by enough people who know how to run a business. So I joined this group and they put you into something called a forum, which is like seven or eight people, all business owners. And you get to just bounce ideas off. You get to talk really about the emotional side of the business. And we you meet once a month. And then the, the chapter at large... They have other events and speakers and things like that. Doing that for four years, I learned a boatload of stuff. You know, because in my former businesses, anywhere from, you know, maybe some doing one or two million. I had one up that was a few hundred million. 
So it was cool to see businesses and get to talk to them intimately about how they run their day-to-day operations. Oh, cuss, yeah. Sign me up. Can you send me the link after? <laughs> I'm all yeah, about it's that. been very cool. What do you hope to accomplish in your career that you've not yet accomplished? Oh, that's not a big question at all. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like I what I what I would want to leave behind as a legacy in the industry is one of compassion and sharing of just helping one another and, and helping our communities. And I think that it's hard to say what that would evolve in over the years. You know, if you asked me when I finished college that I would be on this podcast speaking with you, talking about experiences and actually just being a chef, I'd be like, that is crazy. But what I did know is I always wanted to help people no matter what. And so I think that as long as my North Star of helping people, helping food industry, of just helping my cohorts find that compassion, find that sharing, you know, elevating food and celebrating it. That's what's important to me. And, and however that plays out, whether that's, you know, like more public speaking or I end up teaching somewhere or maybe I go behind the scenes and just do a ton of development work or help companies grow their brands, you know, like whatever that means, I'm okay with that. I think what I've learned is, you know, this nonlinear, really wild career that I've had shows that it might not make sense in the moment, but somehow it all connects. And so you just kind of have to trust in the universe and go for the ride, see where it takes you. I'm that's pretty right. sure I did that's not right. answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's no, it's it it it's very spot on. It, it, it I thought it was a great response. I, I think I, just in you know in our conversation here, you're you're destined for greatness. I can already feel it. Oh my gosh. I think just the way that you view food. I think you have a very unique perspective. I think it's and being that you have your own business, and as you scale that out, I think you're going to find success in this industry. I think what you're on to is something that people are looking for. Maybe, you know, the way you, you made me think about just eating gushers, it was a way that I've never really viewed food before. And I learned something from this conversation in just, you know, 30, 40 minutes, which that's pretty profound. And, and as you do that on a large scale, you're just going to crush it. Oh, thanks. Ooh, I hope I do you justice. <laughs> But thank you. That means a lot. That means a lot. So you're welcome. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time, coming on here, sharing your story. I really, as I've mentioned, enjoyed our conversation. I, I, I'm just so grateful that you were vulnerable and open and shared. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. And we'll cross paths soon. I'm sure. I'm sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. 